I saw your be good baker running by again the other day, says I to old Mr. Brennan. Ah, yes, says he. I've never seen her stand still. And she's running rings around the rest of us with our Brennan's be good bread. Only 60 calories a slice. 60 calories, says I. That's just a whole meal, is it? No, says he. It's the whole meal, the whole grain, and the waste. 60 calories a slice and high in fiber, whatever way it slices. That's why anything baked is better with Brennan's. Today's bread today. Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in mon Iraq the end of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligam a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfame. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Pashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Yatakshet Horan Griven, Orkar Sun, Elis Duhalagas Giminefracht, Gora Kligsar Dukashen Echor. Only Ven Own. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. I'm Adrian Weckler, and you're listening to The Big Tech Show. Now, we often hear people urging us to move to more secure private messaging apps. And whenever that conversation happens, apps like Signal come to the fore. But what are the pros and cons, and what are the other issues that might be attached to moving to an app like that? Well, Meredith Whitaker is the president of Signal, popular messaging app that offers encrypted communication. You might recognize her name from a different context. A couple of years ago, she was an AI researcher at Google, and one of the organizers of the famous Google walkout, during which thousands of employees protested the company's handling of misconduct. She also protests the company's work on military contracts. But Signal is a really popular app with journalists and activists and, in general, people who care about their privacy. It even turned up in the Elon Twitter trial, because I think Elon was using it. Um, Meredith, thank you very much for talking to us today. Can you explain first what Signal is, basically, and where it fits into messaging? Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. Signal is a messaging app. So to people who use Signal, like myself, it may feel similar to WhatsApp or iMessage or you know any number of messaging apps. You open it, you send a text, you send a meme, you send directions to a party, done. It's an easy, pleasant tool for communication. But below the surface, Signal is really different. Signal is fully end-to-end encrypted, which means Signal can't see your messages, third parties can't see your messages, we're not collecting data, and we can't turn your data over to, say, a state with a subpoena. We also go beyond this to protect metadata. So we don't know who's talking to whom. We don't know your profile information or your name. We don't know who's a member of a group. So we do a lot of work and invest a lot in research and development to make sure that our privacy bar is as high as we can raise it and we're providing real privacy to people who want to communicate uh, safely and securely. I think you've just answered my next question, which is what is the essential difference from a privacy point of view from the likes of WhatsApp or iMessage, which are very popular uh, here in Europe. And what you're saying is really it's metadata and it's it's just this idea of not knowing anything about yeah. what users are doing. Absolutely. So you know, WhatsApp does encrypt the message contents. They use the Signal protocol, which we developed, which is the state of the art, to encrypt message contact con- contents. And that is, you know, that's great. That improves privacy. But they collect metadata. They collect information about who you are, 
who you're talking to, who's in a group, what your profile is. So this is very powerful information that can do a lot of work, especially because another essential difference is that WhatsApp is owned by Facebook and Signal is a nonprofit. So WhatsApp can join the metadata that they collect, very powerful metadata, with the huge, unthinkable amounts of personal information that Facebook already has about you, creating really intimate profiles that they can then use for ad targeting, use to target content, or turn over to law enforcement, whatever they want to do. On the other hand, Signal is a nonprofit. So we are not driven by goals of infinite growth and revenue forever. And we can't be, you know, we can't be acquired. We're not looking to continually grow our user base and our engagement. We have very, very different incentives. Our incentive and our sole mission is to provide real private messaging that everyone in the world can access easily and use. As I said, Signal is quite popular with journalists and, uh, and activists, but to a lot of other people <clears throat> who may just be used to using WhatsApp because that's what their family use or iMessage because that's what their uh, friends use. What are the real scary things or worst case scenarios that might happen uh, if they are using one of these apps that is not locked down from a privacy perspective to the extent the signal might be? Well, you know, I'm not going to be able to prognosticate every context for every person under every regime, right? We're in a very diverse and very dynamic world. But I think we can look at history and see that, you know, the history of those with power surveilling and keeping tabs on the, those with less power usually turns out badly for those with less power. And that, you know, as I talk to people in my daily life, as I talk to my friends on Signal, people get it, right? They don't love big tech. They don't love the, you know, quiet surveillance infrastructure that is now instrumenting almost every social and political institution, almost every part of life, right? They get that there's something uncomfortable about that and that that dynamic takes power out of their hands, right? Once the data is in the data stores of big tech, they can do whatever they want with it, right? They can use it to train an AI algorithm that will then perhaps be used to determine if you get a loan or if you get health care. They can use it to create employee monitoring software that will watch you while you work and give you a score that may reduce your pay or may even get you fired. There are a huge number of possibilities of where that data goes and how it's used to affect your lives. And one of the troubling dynamics here is that the people, you and I, from whom this data is collected, about whom this data is created, often have no idea where it goes. You know, it could be given to a government in the US context under a national security letter, which means that the company that received the letter can't talk about the fact that they received the letter. Again, it could be used to train a model. It could be used to you know, amplify harmful content, any number of these things. And it's very unlikely that you and I, the people most affected by those decisions, arguably would have any idea. In Europe, we tell ourselves that our regulators and our GDPR laws are supposed to protect us from the worst edges of all of that. Do you think that that is realistic? Well, I think Europe has certainly been leading, but I think there is, if I'm going to be real about it, attention, right? Attention at the heart of this. Because a lot of the regulations I see and have seen for the last 20 years in tech coming out of Europe are kind of trying to have it both ways trying to grow an endogenous tech ecosystem 
you know, to compete with the U.S. and China, which are the two hubs of you know, so-called big tech, and at the same time pre prevent big tech companies from outside of Europe from perpetrating these privacy harms and other harms on the population. And it's, you know, again, it's kind of magical thinking to think you can have it both ways. So I think a lot of the regulation bears the marks of both big tech lobbying, which they're doing fiercely, you know, in Brussels and elsewhere, and the marks of this sort of, you know, desire to have our own big tech, which uh, oftentimes dilutes and confuses the intention of these regulations. Like, no one is helped by a cookie pop-up on every website every time you visit, every time you need to do something that is, uh, you know, the things we need to do online aren't optional most of the time, right? Like we're doing, you know, I'm signing up for, I'm checking into my flight, right? If I click no cookies, do I not get to check in, right? right? Like it's, you know, it's not looking at the full context and the way that these technologies have actually sort of infiltrated these core functions and institutions of life, right? And I think they're, you know, we need, I think a more holistic set of approaches that kind of look at where we want to go and look at, you know, fundamentally, how do we want to restructure the tech economy? Nowhere, arguably, would you see that to greater extent than in Ireland or in Dublin, which is the home base for mm. most of the big tech companies you're talking to, uh, about, and whose regulation falls uh, at the footsteps of a single regulator uh, in, in Dublin who has had some difficulty uh, keeping up uh, in, in terms of pace with enforcement, has been criticized by a lot of her European colleagues. She would argue that um, they have abided by the letter of the law in terms of European rules. But looking at it from the outside, do you get a sense that Europe is properly enforcing uh, privacy laws on, on these platforms? Or do you think, as you seem to be suggesting, that we could do a lot more? I think, again, Europe is leading the US. Europe is leading a lot of the world. So I don't want to denigrate that. Of course, a lot more could be done. And the fact that you know, after 10 years, 20 years of a number of scholars, a number of politicians, a number of regulators focusing on privacy, recognizing there was a problem, and we're still here, I think you know, the proof that there has has not again been a holistic response is in the you know in the context we now occupy yeah um, if someone is thinking of moving to signal might they be worried about sacrificing functionality in the sense that just this week we've seen whatsapp says that it's rolling out 32 person video calls and subgroups and polling um, is that realistic when you're messaging with your friends you say they don't particularly like big tech but do they miss any of that extra functionality? Well, Signal is also rolling out functionality. And actually, in a few days, maybe after this podcast airs, um, we're launching a stories feature, which, you know, as you know, is a very popular, fairly new tool for communication. It lets you share ephemeral updates that disappear in 24 hours. So you can kind of show your friends what you're up to without demanding a response the way a message would. So we are really attentive to the fact that, you know, we are not in the business of prescribing how people communicate. We're in the business of giving them an option to communicate privately. And stories are popular, so we're going to add that option. And you know, the great thing about Signal Stories is you don't see a string of endless ads, right? It really is private. It's just you and your friends, and you can use them or not use them if you'd like to. But you know, we are adding that functionality. 
Ah. Speaking of uh, ads, how do you keep the lights on? It's a non-profit. You're not, it's not a limitless surveillance uh, system. Yeah, so. we, we don't monetize data on the back end, so we're actually free, as in free. And we don't have another secret business model that is, you know, training AI for drones or what have you. Um, you know, we keep the lights on by, you know, by relying on donations. So we have a generous investment from Brian Acton that is giving us a, you know, an ample runway. WhatsApp co-founder. The WhatsApp yep. co-founder who's who's in, involved with Signal. Um, and we also get, you know, donations in the app from people who rely on Signal. And that's really what we're leaning into because it costs tens of millions of dollars a year to build and deploy signal and that's never going away that's how much it costs to build high availability software that works the way people expect it to work and if signal doesn't work the way people expect it to work people aren't going to use it so that's you know that's core to our mission and we are increasingly asking folks to chip in a couple of dollars a month or make a you know a larger one-time donation to just help us sustain because we're not going to participate in the surveillance business model but we still have to keep the lights on, as you said. Um, and we do think, you know, there are many millions of people who use Signal across the globe. And we think that enough of them will be willing to chip in to keep the lights on and to, you know, and to ensure we're not reliant on one or two big donors. But we actually have a base of support that can't be easily interrupted. Yeah. Opponents of encrypted services in general, and I've covered this for over a decade, they often try to argue that encrypted services let bad people do bad things on a scale that outweighs the benefits of the privacy they bring to people. What in general is your response to that? Well, you know, I would need to engage with a discrete argument on a discrete topic because that's a very general statement. But, you know, we've seen this kind of, you know, magical thinking before that, you know, oftentimes really wants to break encryption. And the reason for breaking encryption is sort of this pretext, you know, bad people use it. But you can't, you know, you can't break encryption for one purpose and not for every other. It either works or it is broken for everyone. And I don't think it is defensible to assume that we are supporting democracy or in, you know, kind of that there is any sort of liberatory rationale to having an entire world subject to pervasive state and corporate surveillance. We look at history and the history of the powerful doing you know, pervasive surveillance on those with less power almost always ends up badly for those with less power. Isn't another view that that pervasive state surveillance that you referenced there is actually already there? That when the standoff happened in California between Apple and the FBI over that iPhone, which might may or may not have had details um, about a, a terrorist bombing, they ended up getting someone else to, to crack it. But that states such as the US, the UK, other European countries, Israel and others, it's almost assumed that they surveil us anyway, despite our, our best efforts, and that it's a moot point. Well, Signal has not been cracked. The Signal protocol is the bar for messaging privacy. And you know, I think the point you just made emphasizes how important Signal's continued growth and thriving is to ensure that people have a truly private means to communicate with each other. Yes, there is pervasive surveillance. Yes, you know, the creep of computational surveillance has, you know, 
grown at you know orders of magnitude over the last 20 years but you know i don't think there's any argument that we can seriously make that a world in which people can't communicate privately can't communicate safely about their most intimate thoughts about you know the fact that they're being harmed about the fact that there is corruption about you know the worlds they want to build is a better world than a world where those in power right now whatever regime they're representing are able to monitor and sort of use surveillance for purposes of whatever they want whether it be oppression or social control or what have you a world with no privacy is a world where the status quo is locked in forever the people who typically make these arguments, and it usually happen, happens after a terrorist bomb goes off or, or, or something of that order, what they usually argue is, well, we can put in regulatory checks and judicial checks and there can be a system and a process there that will stop abuse by state actors and by governments. Is that a credible argument? It has not been proven credible by history. I think we can look at the FISA courts after 9-11 and the history there. I think we can look at, you know, again, the history of authoritarian regimes, and we really need to take seriously what happens if this massive apparatus for surveillance that has been built by private companies who are routinely compelled to share data with governments falls in the ha into the hands of a truly authoritarian regime. You know, we can look at history again where much more limited apparatuses of surveillance were used to, you know, track and oppress minority groups where you know these this you know ability to surveil you know you look at the history of the Stasi you can look at you know the history around the globe and I could you know put on my scholarly hat and sort of go into these examples um, but I think it you know suffice it to say I don't think you know I yeah I, I don't think there's any history that backs up that assertion it's again it's sort of a magical wishful thinking um, that is not uh, that is not augured in reality and it's fair to say, by the way, just, just to point out that this is one of the sticking points between the EU and the US and has been for the last 10 years in relation to transatlantic data agreements. The EU basically doesn't believe the US that it will um, adhere to the type of privacy standards that EU citizens are expected uh, to have. And that has endlessly threatened uh, the, uh, the, the legality of transatlantic Data agreements, but they keep coming up with compromises, and they keep coming up with new treaties, and it kept, keeps getting challenged in court and mm -hmm. defeated, and and and, this, and the cycle continues. But 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 I take your point um, very well. How's the search for a CEO going? It's going well. Yeah, we have the luxury of time, so we're really you know looking for the right person um, in the middle of interviews now, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really optimistic. Yeah, and uh, just just before we go, just looking back, I mentioned in the intro that. Um, some listeners will, will recognize your name from protests of a few years ago in Google. Looking back on that, was uh, do you have any reflection on that now? Do you? Yeah, well, um, I regret nothing. I think, you know, I, I had a duty to my integrity when I learned about, you know, some of these unethical contracts, when I learned about these secretive decisions that were happening behind closed doors to build AI for the... U.S. Department of Defense's drone program, I felt I could not make my name researching the ethics and consequences of AI while standing by and allowing that to happen. So it was, you know, I think it was what anyone in my position would have done to speak up and say no. Well, Meredith Whitaker, um, president of 
Uh, Signal, thank you very much for, for joining us today. And for me, Adrian Wecker, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, thank you for listening as well. Uh, we have been talking at the Web Summit. Thanks to Tabitha Monaghan, who produced, and thanks to Gavin Hennessy on sound. And I will talk to you the same time next week. Bye-bye.